Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Hey guys, before we go beyond the pond, we wanted to tell you about our first sponsor, Cash or Trade. Cashortrade.org is disrupting the secondary ticket market. They've been called the Airbnb of tickets. They help real fans avoid scalping and purchase tickets for face value. Together, we are the change this industry so badly needs. Go to cashortrade.org backslash Osiris and get 25% off a year of gold membership. The gold membership comes with the option of receiving push and text notifications each time a ticket is posted that you are looking for. You can also reply immediately without delay and gain the renew feature to bump your post to the top of the list, increasing your post exposure when looking for hard to get tickets. Again, go to cashertrade.org slash Osiris and add the coupon code Osiris when you check out to get 25% off. This is the real deal. It's not like going on Craigslist or some guy tells you to get the money wired from the CVS to get your Pearl Jam tickets. I've used Cash or Trade many times. It works. It's reliable. I recommend it highly. And finally, we want to remind you that Beyond the Pond is proud to be a charter member of the Osiris Podcast Network. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts connecting music fans like you with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Check out OsirisPod.com for more great podcasts like Burning Ambulance, Southern Songs and Stories, Welcome to the Party Pal, and many more. You'll continue to hear much more about Osiris, our sister podcasts, and upcoming events in the coming weeks. But first, let's go beyond the pond. David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into this very special anniversary episode of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which both Brian and myself, for the past year, have been using the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other non jam bands we think that they might enjoy. Using Fish as a bit of a Trojan horse because. We love fish. We are fish fans. The problem with fish fans is sometimes they get too deep into their head and only listen to fish. And then the next thing you know, you're being fired from the secretary of state position, quite possibly when you got a stomach ailment and you're on the toilet. If only uh, Rex Tillerson had listened to some other bands other than fish, this could have been prevented. Yes, for this last year, you have trusted in us to take you on a journey through not only Fish's history, but also 
the history of many, many, many other bands, including, not limited to, but including the War on Drugs. Drink. I'm drinking now. <laughs> this is a very special episode. Like Dave said, this is our one-year anniversary episode, and we are also doing a 20-year anniversary special here. So this is our 29th episode, and we are focusing on the uh, version of Piper from Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, from April 3rd, 1998. What a show. Also, my father's 42nd birthday. I know you're probably saying right now, what? They played Piper at that show? Why aren't you talking about the roses are free? We'll touch on that. Don't worry. But there's plenty of good reasons to talk about this Piper as well. And so... uh, for you guys who have listened to us and for those of you who are just catching on here one year in, just to give you a sense of what it is that we do here, we uh, are going to take the Piper, we're going to break this down in a thematic standpoint, and we are going to uh, introduce you guys to some new music. Uh, and this episode is going to feature some bands that we're pretty sure you guys haven't listened to, as well as uh, some bands that we know that you're quite familiar with, but we think that you guys are going to enjoy this spin that we're taking off of this. And some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include the underrated follow-up, the overrated classic, and dimly lit spooky ambience. And on that note, let's get to the fish. As stated, the topic tonight is really going to focus on uh, the April 3rd, 1998 Piper for NASA Coliseum. So we say, why this jam? NASA Roses, NASA Roses, NASA Roses. We get it, but the Piper is pretty freaking awesome in its own right. It's eternally the bridesmaid here. And yet, I would argue if you sober or with like uh, a few beers in me like we have right now i would say that this piper is many instances more enjoyable than the nassau roses which i'm gonna commit some blasphemy i think is a bit overrated you know about that roses before we jump into the piper um you know yes this is one of those ubiquitous must hear fish jams this is the kind of jam that every new fan has to hear within their first two years of fandom. It's the kind of jam that most fans not named David Goldstein listen to ad nauseum, trying to decipher the wall sound ambience the band builds to and the minimalistic grooves they achieve in the song's inward peak. It's an essential jam, though one that many fans do move on from after they pass through that introductory listening stage into the phase where they seek out lesser-known fish jams. Um, This is a jam that... I would agree with you to a certain extent is slightly overrated based on the show that it came from and the kind of historical importance that it had for the band long term. 
That said, I listened to this jam right before we uh, went to record, and it just did it for me. That breakdown, that the, the, the little Trey riff that he does midway through is just one of my favorite things the band has ever done. I mean, I was in attendance at 4398. It was actually uh, the first Mike song I ever heard since I started seeing Fish in 1995. So that got me screaming at the top of my lungs. Unfortunately, I didn't entirely love the Roses Are Free Jam on the date in 1998. I still don't entirely love it now. It's almost like I was born without a certain gene that allows me to enjoy <laughs> the four three roses. It's like I don't quite enjoy Springsteen as much as like a 38-year-old white guy with a beard should be expected to. I might not have the Springsteen gene. I don't know. I'm really, really trying. I mean, this song... The jam, I think it establishes a great wah groove. It runs it into the ground. And instead of going into another song, it just kind of putters aimlessly adrift at sea for 10 minutes longer than it needs to, never really catching fire. I've tried so many times. I mean, I've I've tied myself to a couch and put these headphones up and have not let myself leave the room until I listen to it five times. And I still keep coming <laughs> to the same conclusion. I just don't get it. People tell me out of my fucking mind. I'm sorry. But anyway, Brian, tell me about this Piper. Yes, the Piper, the Piper is what we're here for. And, and yeah. as you guys can tell, uh, we we cannot agree on the roses. We decided to go with the Piper, not simply because we both love this jam, but this is a fantastic jam and one that if it was played as the... Uh, you know, uh, second set opener for a show without a jam as massive as the Roses, I think would get just as much um, uh, hype around the fan base. Um, this is a slow build Piper. Uh, this is something the band just really unfortunately seems uninterested in doing anymore. Um, and there's that quiet riff that they play after the lyrics that's in the original part of the song, and that's been uh, kind of excised from from the band's uh, uh, repertoire when they play this song. Yeah. Um, in this instance, though, and this is one of the more unique versions of the of of Piper, the song doesn't just conclude with the quiet riff. It develops into a sort of ambient jam almost immediately. And it features Fishman hitting his drums like he's Jackson Pollock splashing paint cans. It's unbelievable. And if you've ever watched the YouTube video of them playing this Piper, which we'll post uh, when this episode goes live, um, there's a there's a shot of Fishman just playing uh, while Trey is building this wall of sound through feedback and pages kind of gorgeously playing under him on the grand piano. And Fishman's just going crazy for like a good minute and a half. It's all about Fishman. Yeah, I mean, in this case, you've got Trey. He's focusing on rhythmic atmosphere playing. He showcases how much he learned over the past year in 97. He trusts the band members throughout the jam in ways we've never truly featured here on Beyond the Pond, aside from maybe the Fukuoka twist and um, the Madison Square Garden ghost. And what we have here is the band building a true sonic wall from nearly nothing. It's dim. It's kind of spooky. It's probably the closest fish has come to imitating Brian Eno's music for films. And it's kind of like from an effect standpoint, it's some of the best work you've heard from Trey. It's subtle and yet all-encompassing at the same time. You know, Piper itself, it's really an interesting test case for fish, kind of stepping back to the song. It's... it's um really become like an old reliable for the band. It's kind of on par with Mike's and Tweezer and Gin and Down With Disease. 
I mean, this is a song that the band called on to open up their 1231-2002 kickoff show. And it's really a diverse jam vehicle. Uh, it's the kind of song that can explore melody and aggressive like cock rock. Uh, it can also it can do that in the same jam. It can do that separately. It can also really uh, um, explore groove, like the eight eight ninety eight version did. Um, but that all said, virtually no version of Piper sounds anything like this version. And that's one of the reasons that we were so drawn to this. I would say the only three that can compare to this are the 12899 version from Portland, Maine, which is in a the middle of a phenomenally underrated show that I would encourage you to listen to at uh, immediately. Uh, the 12203 set one version from Boston, Massachusetts, that's really just atmospheric and psychedelic, and the 112014 uh, Piper from Vegas that uh, comes out of an excellent Chalk Dust Torture second set opener and uh, sees Trey playing some really amazing ambient washes of sound uh, to close it out in, in one of my favorite shows from the fall 2014 tour. Quick side note, quick personal side note. So Piper is a really personally important favorite song, uh, important song for myself, for my wife, uh, for the both of us. So following the August 15th, 2015 show at Merriweather Post, which, Dave, you were at that, correct? Oh, yeah. Probably. Fuck, that was a show. Yeah, that was one of the most fun shows I've been to. I was sideways during that second set. That's just such a fun fucking show. Unbelievable show. God. So, so my wife and I went to that. My wife was 31 weeks pregnant at the time. And uh, when we left the show, which, yeah, this was a top five show for the both of us. And I would agree with you. I mean, this was probably one of my favorite shows, if not the most fun show I've ever seen. Um, uh, I caught set one with Jonathan Hart of Broke Down Podcast of Note, which was really fun. Um, so, but anyway, leaving the show, we decided to we decided that we would name our child Piper because they played a really amazing Piper in the middle part of that second set. Dirty hippies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we would name our child Piper in some fashion. Um, uh, it would be the first name if we were having a girl, and it'd be the middle name if we were having a boy. And just four weeks later, when uh, our son um, decided to arrive uh, four weeks early, uh, we gave birth to Wallace Piper Brinkman. And every time that I ask him to say his name now, and he says Wallace Piper Brinkman, I just get like that ooey gooey feeling. Uh, you know, not just because it's my kid, but you know the fact that. Little does he know the backstory to all that. But uh, getting back to, to the mm. show here in question. So 4398. This was a hell of a show, too. This is a show I wish that I could have. This is a show I wish I could have seen live myself. Um, what are your thoughts on this show and kind of the island tour in total, Dave? Well, I mean, certainly you don't need this podcast to tell you that the island tour is potentially probably the four most interesting, complete shows in succession that the band has ever played. I mean, you can argue that's not the case, but you can certainly argue that it is. And I wouldn't think you were crazy. I mean, the closest comparisons are probably Big Cypress, Dick's 2012, and the entire Baker's Dozen. I mean, they basically, they said, we want to play these four shows because we're excited and we were bored. I remember being in the computer lab at Rutgers University when they had all of uh see-through green like IMAX and going on to Fishnet or something and seeing it and immediately like jumping up in my chair and saying, holy shit. <laughs> I but, really feel like they should recreate the spontaneity surrounding this run at least once more in their career. 
Like that idea of we're bored, let's see what happens, we'll schedule a couple shows. I mean, it really worked out here. Um, oh, God. Yeah. I mean, every one of these shows has highlights that in some ways surpass what you get in some tours. I mean, every show is just packed with highlights. Um, on April 2nd, you've got a tube opener that goes into a really killer jam. A massive, really ambient stash jam that uh, segues into Horn. The debut of Birds of a Feather. Uh, a Wolfman's right into Sneak and Sally, right into Frankie Says, followed by one of the most sonically impressive twists with some of the most impressive light shows that ever Corona has ever, ever done. If you've not seen the aliens YouTube, were landing on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on four, three, you've got, uh, the aforementioned Mike song opener, a week of with cross-eyed and painless teases, a really phenomenal Reba. I know that this is a Reba that you really enjoy, right? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Rose fantastic Reba. You got Carini, uh, only its second stateside performance, and then the Tweezerless reprise encore. Which I don't know if there's a more exciting moment in a, in a fish show than when they play Tweezer reprise, and you're like, "There's no Tweezer." There's Plus the no antelope. Tweezer. Oh yeah, that was uh, fantastic. That was the um, the Carini's gonna get you mm-hmm. antelope. <laughs> and then four four Tweezer opener. Set two is airtight. You got the birds of a feather jam, long, very fast. Two thousand one. There was a jam out of brother, the ghost lizards, Bowie hood. That's, I mean, four four may be the relative weakling of the show, and yet it would still be like a highlight on any tour you can name. That second set is my favorite set of the whole run. Really? That's, okay. Yeah, the first set is a little after the tweezer. The first set kind of dips a bit, but I love that second set so much. And then, of course, 4-5, you got the Occupy Ceremony into You Enjoy Myself, the Bathtub Gin into Cities, Maze Shafty into Possum, into the Funkadelic Cavern, where the funk got so deep. Trey just wanted to dance. Told the fans told the audience. they wanted to. Told them right. to stick around. All we want to do is dance. I mean, also, what's great about, I mean, there was some incredible stage banter at the Island Tour. Right, right, like right. When they were talking about Birds of a Feather, they did the whole thing where he's like, you know, how in the 70s rock shows, guys say, like, this is off our new album, our second track. <laughs> they were very, it was a level of fun and enjoyment for the audience and band that is probably hasn't, well, I would say it hasn't been seen since Baker's Dozen. That's like the closest corollary to the Island Tour, I think. Yeah, it's that clear sense that like the band was just comfortable. They were hanging out. They're in the Northeast in the middle of April, a month that they really had no business touring in past 1994. Uh, it just has such a cool vibe over it, such a great feel. I mean, all the accolades that are spilled out year after year when this tour comes around is, you know, for its anniversary everyone's heard it everyone knows it it's it's just such a very unique very special weekend uh, long weekend in the band's history um what i find really remarkable about it just to kind of cap all this off is um you can tell throughout this run how clearly their sound had changed in just four months um from the funk tour of, of fall 97 suddenly they're less abrasive they're groovier, they're more ambient and softer around the edges. You hear Eno working into their minds and music more than David Byrne, and suddenly the push towards the ambient jam has begun, and you can really hear 1999 and 2000 sound really creep in. 
And at this point, I think uh, let's turn the bridesmaid into the bride and let's play a little bit of the Piper Jam from April 3rd, 1998.
Okay, we hope that you enjoyed uh, that segment of the Piper from April 3rd, 1998. So, well, you know, what we like to do is do the jam in a large musical context. So the first segment we're going to do here is talk about two albums we consider to be underrated follow-ups. In this case, the underrated being the Piper versus the Nassau Roses Are Free Jam. So the band I'm going to talk about right now is a uh, band that was kind of at their peak, most famous in the early and mid-2000s in New York City, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And the album I'm going to talk about is their sophomore album called Show Your Bones, and the song I'm going to play is called Way Out. So the first Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs album called Fever to Tell really introduced the front person, uh, the front woman Karen O. The masses is a you know, hellaciously awesome front woman. She combined everything that was great about Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders, Debbie Harry from Blondie, a little bit of, uh, little bit of uh, Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees, into one package is radiated East Village cool. I mean, awesome outfits, shrieking, singing, drinking on stage, crushing beers on her head, you know, just a very charismatic individual. So the first album was a big hit, but really um, saved the song Maps and the song Why Control. It was kind of more about actual attitude in uh, Shrieking as opposed to, I guess, real songs. I mean, don't get me wrong. It definitely had a good deal of songs. It kind of lacked a bit of melodicism. Might have gotten a little tiresome after a while. But it's the furthest thing from bad. It's messy and it's fiery and it's certainly of a piece with other uh, – other New York City albums from that era, like um, The Strokes, This Is It, Interpol's Turn, The Bright Lights, though maybe somewhat more disposable than either of those. And now we're in 2018, and I don't think anybody remembers the follow-up album, meaning Show Your Bones. And what Show Your Bones may have lacked in the scuzziness of that first record, it more than made up for in songcraft and musicianship. I mean, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, at this point, they were much better at their instruments, and they were capable of writing much better songs. And at the time, I mean, the hype around this scene was still as such that it managed to debut at number 11 on the, on the Billboard charts, sold 56,000 copies its first week, nominated for a Grammy, certainly somebody had been listening to it. But by 2006, kind of uh, the first wave of New York City rock that was detailed in the book Meet Me in the Bathroom was kind of dead on arrival and Show Your Bones failed to come up with anything in the way of a hit. Um, one of the reasons I think this was they released the first single Gold Lion. That was the wrong that was the wrong song to put out as a single. It's one of the weaker tunes in the album. It sounds a heck of a lot the Love and Rocket song, No New Tale to Tell. But ultimately this is the album that really establishes the guitarist Nick Zinner as a pedal-heavy, experimental guitar rock beast. The midsection of the album goes prime shoegaze. The song Phenomena, it kind of sounds like he's sitting off car alarms while he's playing solos. There's some songs that sound like spaghetti westerns. There's real variety. There's real songs. And I think it's the better album. And plus the drummer, Brian Chase, who was more of like a jazz guy before joining Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. He kind of sounds like he's playing with big oversized drumsticks, sort of um, like what Tommy Chong was doing in the climactic rock fight scene in Up in Smoke. That's what it, what it calls to mind. 
And this album was supposedly born of frustration. The band nearly came to breaking up. No one knew what it wanted to sound like. And it was produced by uh, Spike Jones's younger brother who went under the alias Squeaky Clean. I think it was the first album he ever produced. Maybe the last album he ever produced. And he did a pretty good job of it. But it's kind of a forgotten album at this point, and especially in light of the one after called It's Blitz. Had a hit with uh, the song Zero. A lot of synths on that album, maybe too many synthesizers. But really, this is a really good album. I think it's um, Show Your Bones is really ripe for discovery, especially in light of the fact that um, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs recently introduced um, they're going to do like a 15th anniversary show for Fever to Tell where they're going to play it front to back, which I think is kind of sad in light of the fact that they've only got four albums. They haven't been around that long, and they already feel compelled to do the whole uh, like reunion, let's play the first album in its entirety thing. But in any event, I really think you should check out Show Your Bones because it's good. No one thinks about it much anymore. And uh, let's listen to Way Out. So, transition in here, another underrated follow-up. Full disclosure, I am completely aware that I'm going to probably piss a bunch of you off with this choice. So, I am an unabashed Kanye West fan. I love his career arc. I love the way that he fuses rock, soul, funk, 80s sonic wall of sound landscapes, noise, art rock, EDM, classical music, etc., etc., under this larger umbrella of rap. I know of no other rapper who has transformed the genre in such extreme ways so many times over like Kanye. So in 2010, he released his masterpiece fifth album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. This is as big a record as one could ever imagine making. It's insanely ambitious and unyielding in its dedication for perfection. 
It's perhaps the greatest hip hop album ever made. Is that blasphemous to say? No, I love that record more than more than life itself. <laughs> that is <laughs> such that a is a album. phenomenal record. Just as an aside, this was back in um when it was released in 2010. At one time, I was working at at a beer festival in Boston with some friends, and then afterwards, we went back to my buddy's house. We were drunk on 800 times a barrel aged beer and we just put on this record incredibly loud and had like a moshing kanye dance party it was amazing it's the best it's the best yeah. um you know if it's not the greatest hip-hop album ever made it's at least the biggest it's equal parts arrogant and self-righteous it's accusatory and celebratory this is an album where west plays the victim and the king throughout in 2010 Pitchfork awarded it a 10 out of 10 in November of that year and then named it the album of the year. And then again in 2014, they named it the best record of the first half of the decade. And really, aside from Damn, maybe To Pimp a Butterfly and Run the Jewels 2 and any unknown album yet to be released in the next 18 months, I don't really see another album that surpasses it for Pitchfork's list once they come down to uh, do the top albums this decade. But... We're not here to talk about my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Perhaps we will when we get to the inevitable Kanye West deep dive. Yes, 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 it is coming. Mm. We're here to talk about the cagey, minimalistic follow-up, 2013's Yeezus. So it's hard to believe but five years have passed since this record was released, and it's still viewed with equal parts skepticism and misunderstanding. While it was critically praised in the weeks and months following its release, it never took over publicly in the way that my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy did. As West's personal life at the time and the circus that surrounded the life of Pablo's release have taken center stage in his career, his music has really faded in the background. That said, this record should not be overlooked. It's scronky, it's focused, it's assaulting, it's a proper transition towards hip-hop's directional shift in the 2010s. Songs like Black Skinhead, New Slaves, I Am A God, and Blood On The Leaves are so deliberate and so focused on the true enemy. This is hip-hop looking at the establishment, calling bullshit on anyone who uses politics and, and uh, other propaganda to confuse and oppress the public. This directly led to the rise of Kendrick Lamar. This directly led to the rise of the uh, Run The Jewel collaboration it's everything you hear in hip hop nowadays you heard in uh, Yeezus back in 2013. The opening 30 seconds of the album are unlike anything heard in hip hop prior to June 15, 2013, but like everything you've heard since then. Notably, three weeks before this album was released, Wes called in Rick Rubin to quickly help him strip the album down to the essentials. And just leading up to the album, this album was recorded just over the first couple of months of 2013. In March of that year, he claimed the record was almost finished. A month later, he said it was only 30% completed. When Ruben arrived, West played him a near three-hour album and just told him to strip it all down to the essentials. Um, and for the record itself, from a release standpoint, I mean, this is the lo-fi of the lo-fi of West release. The, uh, there's no artwork. Uh, this is his most experimental album to date. There's really nothing about this record designed to capture you or pull you in aside from the music itself. And at 40 minutes, it's his shortest work by far and a record that's really intended to bowl you over before moving on rather than have you sit there and absorb it over and over and over again. 
Uh, most of this album was written and recorded in Paris as Wes wanted to continue to use the history, art, and fashion of the city to continue to influence his writing. And it really starts to come out that sort of aspect of, uh, of Wes's career overall. Um, if I could offer any sort of criticism of this, you know, West as a whole seems to want, want to have everything both ways. He wants to marry a vacuous celebrity like Kim Kardashian and be a civil rights leader. He wants to speak out against blacks falling victim to materialistic slavery while at the same time staking his career in fashion and bragging about champagne and clothes and all of his lyrics. He wants to write a perfect love song like Bound 2, but have it be about an inaccessible woman who represents nothing which many of his fans seek in a woman. In short, I love Kanye West and I hate him at the same time. Yeezus is the moment where he started to move towards a direction where more people hated him than less. And yet it's still such a brilliant, brilliant record. I can't deny it. It's a transformational album. Its influence has lingered over this god-awful decade. And in many ways, it summarizes it like perhaps no other record of the decade. I mean, I've got to go back, listen to Yeezus again. When it came out, I did not like it. I thought it was overly abrasive, really unnecessarily offensive in some places. And like that song, Blood on the Leaves, I just, oh, God, I I hated that song so much. Maybe (laughs) I still do. I don't know. Um, I just didn't like that record at all. Maybe I got to go back and try again. It's kind of separated. And then with The Life of Pablo, he followed that up. It wasn't ever officially released. Didn't he kind of like put out a track listing and then he added to it and took away that album was a ongoing playlist that was never completed. Right. Like living, breathing thing. I was not a fan of the life of Pablo. And um, when it really comes down to it, this is the last record. I mean, yeah, this is the last record. I think I I really love of his. Um, It'll be interesting to see whatever he comes out with next. I'm not currently aware of anything being released in the immediate standpoint. He's recording in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Is he really? Yeah. He's been like, he's recording in Wyoming at Jackson Hole. I don't know if he's a skier or or what, or it feels like it's remote, but he's like bringing in like Travis Scott, like other rappers to... Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll be interested to hear it at, at all senses. His, his album releases are an event no matter what. And I think that Yeezus in and of itself, I mean, this was kind of the first time... You know, leading up to my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, he spent the entire summer of 2010 releasing singles every single Friday. There was mm. such a event. Good Friday record, the Good Friday series. Um, there was such an event to build up. Jesus, I remember hearing about. He was releasing it, and then he was on Saturday Night Live, and the songs kind of punched you in the face. And then the album came out, and it was like, what the fuck. Um, and so, you know, for a lot of reasons, this was his first time really experimenting with, okay, what happens if I just throw something out there to people without any sort of hype, without any sort of press, almost like, you know, a debut album all over again. And so for a lot of reasons, you know, it's, this is an underrated follow-up. This is a record that I think everyone who has liked West music, who likes hip hop from this decade should go back and listen to, um, the song that I want to feature is On Sight, which is the opener. And the reason for it is just this song kind of encapsulates all of the sonic 
kind of craziness and the lyrical uh, uh, themes that you're going to hear throughout the entirety of the album right here in a small little two-minute package. So um, let's go ahead and let's listen to On Sight right now by Kanye West off of Jesus. Yeezy season approaching, fuck whatever y'all been hearing, fuck what, fuck whatever y'all been wearing, a monster about to come alive again, soon as I pull up and park the bins, we get this bitch shaking like Parkinson's, take my number and lock it in, Indian here, no moccasins, it's too many hoes in this house of sin, real nigga back in the house again, black Tim's all on your couch again, black dick all on your spouse again, and I know she like chocolate men, she got more niggas off than Cochrane. Huh? On sight, on sight. How much do I not give a fuck? Let me show you right now for you give it up. How much do I not give a fuck? Let me show you right now for you give it up. Alright, hope you guys enjoyed Yeezy that we were just playing there. Yeezy taught me. Yeezy taught me. Mm. Um, so we're going to move into our second section here. We're going to talk about the overrated classics. So last section was kind of our spinoff on the Piper being the underrated follow-up to a big classic. This is kind of our take on the classic album classic songs that are somewhat overrated, although here is our defense in a certain way. Um, I'm going to talk about an album that's very near and dear to my heart. It's been with me since I was in the womb. This is a song, this is uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. So this is an album that... Uh, Not only was it when you were in the womb, didn't it have something to do with you becoming in the womb? It had something to do with uh, why I'm I'm alive. Um, okay. Let's put it that way. I mean, the river is the reason why uh, one Jim Brinkman and Nancy Hilb, uh, when they started to uh, when they started dating, they actually fell in love. And ah. later, when Born in the USA came out, um, yada yada yada. Um, so this natural album, progression. Natural progression. Seven of the of this album's 12 tracks were top 10 hits. Can you, can you imagine that? Jesus Christ. It sold over 30 million albums. It was the best-selling album of 1985, and subsequently this was the best-selling album of Bruce Springsteen's career. This is a classic in the biggest term, and for a long time, this was viewed as an overrated record and as overrated as they come. So this album, of note, and a bit of a plug here for uh, one of our favorite podcasts out there, um, this was featured prominently during the Celebration Rock podcast recent series on Bruce Springsteen, and Patterson Hood of the Drive-By Truckers did a really excellent breakdown of both the highs and the lows of its album, both the successes and the inherent flaws within the record. 
Um, really would encourage you guys to go and listen to that. If you like what we do here at Beyond the Pond, you definitely would love Celebration Rock as well. It's a great podcast. So the origins of this album, the origins of Born in the USA, can be found in what became the Nebraska album. Uh, Springsteen in 1982 sat down to make a very band-heavy rock record and ended up just releasing the first batch of songs as little more than demos in uh, the fall of 1982. He then spent almost two years in the studio perfecting this record. And, you know, following Born to Run, Darkness on the Edge of Town and the River, the latter of two which contained complete other albums alongside of the ones that were released, uh, few should have been surprised that he spent this long crafting this record. Here the goal was bigness and reach. How to take his message to as many people as possible. This is the record that in many ways defined 1980s rock and many other ways humbled Bruce Springsteen in, in the type of manner that he simply could not recover from for the next 15 years. In the years since this record came out, Springsteen has expressed ambivalence over the album, stating that it feels more like a collection of songs than a cohesive album. In addition, he worried about the songwriting being as high quality as Nebraska or Darkness or Tunnel of Love. And politically, this album had a really weird impact. So like Darkness in Nebraska, it's staunchly anti-big business, it's pro-worker, it's anti-war, it's pro-social welfare. And yet, like most Republicans tend to do, this was misinterpreted as a pro-Reagan, pro-America album. The title track was even played during campaign rallies for Reagan, which... If there's ever a jokes on you, Reagan type of moment, it's him playing Born in the USA and not knowing what the lyrics are actually saying. Mm. This oh. record, uh, it, it really helped to solidify the sound for Heartland Rock, which helped to inspire the sound for rock and roll in the 1980s. John Mellencamp's Scarecrow and Tom Petty's Southern Accents both heavily were influenced by this record. Um, and basically every single War on Dr- Drugs song can be traced back to this album. Now, once again, in this anniversary episode, please drink. Oh, I am. So I've had a very complicated relationship with this record. This was the first Bruce album I remember hearing. And uh, of note, uh, I actually attended this show where they shot the video for Dancing in the Dark, complete with a young Courtney Cox dancing on stage with Bruce. Albeit I was in my mother's womb, so I wasn't. There, but I didn't know that. Yeah, really, man, I was there. I was Holy there. shit! <laughs> it's basically oh. like uh, Wally going to the uh, Meriwether Post show and ball while in Susie's womb. It's crazy. <laughs> um, but as I grew up in the 1990s, I really lost all connection with this album because it just sounded so dated to me. And it's it's one of those weird things. Like the 80s sound felt so dated in the 90s, whereas now it sounds somewhat relevant and 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 timely. Um, But my love for Bruce as I was growing up and in a household that looked at Bruce as though he was the Pope uh, came through in albums like The River and Darkness. And later when I was in college and going through a massive Dylan obsession through Greetings from Ashbury Park and uh, Born to Run. But over the last few years as Heartland Rock has taken over my interests and the 1980s sound has become uh, far more predictive and interesting to me. This album has reemerged as one I regularly seek out. While I still look to the river, Tunnel of Love, Darkness, and even now Tom Joad as the peaks for Springsteen, this record is so shockingly good it almost makes up for the fact that it was everywhere and all-encompassing for a time in the mid-1980s. 
So we're going to play one of my favorite songs off of this album, a song that uh, if you have not heard, I think could completely change your mind on the album. And I think that you're going to hear so much of the music that you've heard over the last year from Beyond the Pond in this song itself. So this is Downbound Train off of Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen born in the USA. Um, a little older than you, so I have a, a big memory of that album when I was five and six years old, being absolutely everywhere and inescapable, like worked its way into my veins, under my skin. Only now that I'm older, I realize that it's uh, quite, quite good. And I've been listening to Darkness on the Edge of Town quite a bit lately, which I've uh, learning to appreciate Springsteen more and more and more. But I'm not going to talk about Springsteen. I'm going to talk about, in this section for overrated classics, The Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And the song we're going to play is probably my favorite song on the album called Through the Eyes of Ruby. So I'm not going to tell you the album isn't a classic, as it most definitely is, but the focus here is on the overrated classics. And for starters, of the Smashing Pumpkins' big three, being Melancholy, their debut album Gish, and Siamese Dream, I think it's the weakest. This is a relative comparison, but there's uh, there's unquestionable filler on Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And this album is kind of where the listener starts to learn for the first time that uh, this Billy Corrigan fellow might be a bit of a jerk. So for starters, there seems to be a lot more I in this album. Uh, Corgan's vocals, they're pushed front and center in what's ultimately a less murky mix. The lyrical content kind of took a back seat on uh, Gish in favor of Hayes and heroic guitar solos. Siamese Dream found him stepping out a bit more, but, you know, to the extent that things were anthemic, it was more related to the guitar solos and the drum fills and the choruses. 
But the first single on this album was Bullet Butterfly Wings, which uh, has the infamous chorus, Despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage. To this day, I still kind of dislike because that's really obvious mid-90s angst. I think that's actually my least favorite Pumpkin song. I, I can't stand that song at all. It could be my least favorite Pumpkin single. I mean, they definitely have worse songs, but in terms of songs that they thought were good, it could be the worst one. Right. So I'm, I'm certainly with you on that. And to me, the singles on Melancholy actually constitute the filler and the weaker tracks. That'd be uh, like Bullet Butterfly Wings, Zero, Tonight's the, uh, uh, Tonight, Tonight. Not Tonight's the Night. That's a new young record. (laughs) (laughs) And to a lesser extent, um, 1979, all of these kind of lack the majesty of Cherub Rock and Siva and Rhinoceros. Usually the pumpkin singles were like incredible. Here, not so much. Um, If I was 15 years old and I heard Bullet of Butterfly Wings before I heard Cherub Rock, I might not be the Billy Corgan apologist that I am today. But really, the gold in this album is to found the deep cuts that make up the second disc, Twilight to Starlight. Um, Through the Eyes of Ruby, I think that's like the ultimate Corgan document aside from Cherub Rock because it kind of encapsulates, encapsulates everything he does good and bad. It's got like 70 plus guitar tracks, underwater sounding psychedelia leading to a wall of angry guitars, wedding imagery. And then it's got the ridiculous shouty conclusion of the night has come to hold us young, which is probably the most Corrigan has ever Corriganed. (laughs) (laughs) That is your best singing that you've ever done on this podcast as well. All right. It's getting laid up in here. Uh, songs like Bodies, Where Boys Fear to Tread, XYU by Starlight, We Only Come Out at Night. I mean, this too doesn't have much filler. I mean, you kind of have to wade through the somewhat shallow waters of the first disc to get there. So let's talk that this album made Smashing Pumpkins arena headlining superstars. And yet it's also kind of the beginning of the end for them as far as I'm concerned. Um Brian here will go to the mat from 1998's Adore. I will. I love that record so much. Okay. I won't. (laughs) To me, (laughs) Melancholy was the last great Smashing Pumpkins album, the last one they recorded with everyone from the original lineup, although um, that's kind of a misnomer because I know uh, Billy Corgan had a thing where he recorded are the people's parts by himself because he didn't trust them to do good aside from the drums. So the pre-breakup Machina part one and part two albums are largely terrible. Um, the post-breakup quote-unquote smashing pumpkins, you know, kind of like in Game of Thrones, you know, how they bring the mountain back to life. It's kind of like a shadow of what it used to be. That's kind of what I felt that uh, Smashing Pumpkins Mach 2 was, that album Zeitgeist with just Jimmy Chamberlain. Not good, very ugly. And yet, I mean, Corgan, he kind of trudged forward. He put out albums of varying quality under the Smashing Pumpkins name, plays shows with or without Jimmy Chamberlain, in which he often refuses to play the hits. And then he blames the audience for not liking. He does like a 15-minute cover of Pink Floyd, set the controls for the heart of the sun. That was actually the uh, 
20th anniversary shows back in 2008. He wore a big cape. He like yelled at the audience. He was, um, it wasn't very good. He actually put out a record, I want to say four years ago, called Oceania. It had three good songs, probably his best, three best songs since 1995, even still. So now he's doing a uh, summer arena reunion tour to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Smashing Pumpkins with three quarters of the original lineup. And he's promising only to play songs from the uh, pre-formal breakup era. And he leaked a potential song list on Twitter that actually seems relatively tasty, despite it has at least too many songs from, too, too many songs from Ashina. So what keeps it from being a true reunion is the missing quarter is the original bass player, Darcy Retsky. Maybe not the most crucial member of the band, but allegedly hired and fired again via a series of cryptic text messages that can only be described as uh, Trump administration-like in their incompetence and disregard for normal protocol and just pure dickishness. And Corgan's done incredibly dumb shit. Like, he's appeared on Alex Jones' Infowars and he's talked about liberal snowflakes or probably the same snowflakes that got pissed when he played, like, Pink Floyd covers at his 20th anniversary gigs. So, Corgan's an asshole. And yet... I'd still consider finding a cheap ticket to those 30th anniversary <laughs> shows because Jimmy Chamberlain is an amazing, amazing drummer. Totally. And I, I think Cherub Rock is still the single best alternative rock song from the 90s. It could very well be a song I've listened to more than any other song in my 38 years on this earth. So Billy Corgan has entered my free pass zone, kind of like Bono's in my free pass zone. So... My forgiveness runs deep. I don't have to invite him over to dinner to talk politics. I just need to hear him play the fucking guitar. I'm kind of conflicted. So, now we're going to play a deep cut off Melancholy. Here's Through the Eyes of Ruby. segment here 
And uh, we're going to be talking about kind of this. This is the most sonically aligned segment to the Piper Jam. We're going to be talking about dimly lit, spooky, ambient music here. And uh, the kind of dimly lit, spooky type of music that you're probably hearing in Charlottesville, Virginia at the time of recording because we just watched UMBC beat uh, University of Virginia, the only number 16 seed to beat a number one seed in the uh, uh, NCAA tournament. Just insane stuff to be watching while we're recording this. How about that? Yeah, this is a, to quote my favorite Hamilton song, the world turned upside down, 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 down. Yeah, this is a, this is what makes sports great. It really is. really is. Like when the Cubs won the World Series. Um, yeah, I like when the Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> so, and when <laughs> when the Mets win the World Series after I die. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> to quote Ben Greenfield, I hope you live forever. Mm, me too. No, I don't. <laughs> All right. So um, we're going to talk about dimly lit spooky ambience here because uh, that was a huge theme of the Piper that uh, that we listened to a little bit earlier this show. So uh, to kick things off, we're going to talk about one of my favorite artists, Tim Hacker. Uh, we're going to talk about a song off of his 2011 record, Rave Death 1972. I discussed Tim Hecker's 2013 album Virgins in episode 11 when Dave and I featured our two favorite jams of the Baker's Dozen. Dave featured the 726 Tube. I featured the 730th song I heard the ocean sing. And uh, I'd encourage you to go back and hear that to hear a more exhaustive overview of his rel- of his really remarkable career. Um, for the purposes of this episode, we're just going to talk about Rave Death 1972, which was Hecker's sixth album. And it was, of note, my 12th favorite album of 2011. Uh, This is perhaps his sparsest record. Much of it was recorded in a church in Reykjavik, Iceland. And the theme of this album was uh, degradation and the death of music overall. Most of this record was recorded in a single day on July 21st, 2010, while Hecker played compositions on a church's pipe organ which he later accompanied with guitar and piano overlays. Uh, He returned to his Montreal studio a little bit later to mix in and layer various sounds, creating the wall of sounds in certain tracks, such as the album's lead track. Hecker described this as a hybrid record. It was both equally live and a studio record. The cover of the album depicts MIT students pushing a piano off of a dormitory roof in 1972, something that began as a rebellion, which has turned into a bit of an annual tradition at the school. And throughout the record, Hecker wanted to focus heavily on the idea of trash and discarding usable things in our lives, and this felt to him to be something of a fitting image. So this record has been described as a drone-based tempest with the pipe organ holding particular importance over the album. It's been cited by a number of critics as one of the closest combinations of shoegaze and ambient music ever, with a direct number of comparisons being made to the band's slow dive specifically. The underlying battle within this record is between music recorded live in the Reykjavik church and that which was digitally altered, which seems to be the peak thematically in the album's final track. The final track is In the Air 3, 
And in here it's as if Hecker's saying that music will survive in its purest form no matter what you throw at, no matter what you layer over the original track, the music that you make will survive in its purest form. Um, this notion is much of why I think it fits so well for this particular Piper. This Piper is first and foremost a jam that showcases the discrepancy between space and noise and also showcases the shift the band will undergo over the next 30 months as they move deeper into atmospheric music and question the necessity to peak jams overall when they can just explore textures and musical spaces. So we're going to listen to the song In the Fog. This is the lead track off of the album Rave Death 1972. And this is the one I think closest sounds like the Piper. So I hope that you guys enjoy In the Fog here off of Rave Death 1972 by detailing that Tim Hecker album and track so in terms of my dimly lit ambience I'm going to talk about the group Massive Attack and their album Mezzanine and the song Men Next Door the old pitchfork review of Massive Attack's Mezzanine sums it up better than I ever could on my own you could call it dark that undersells things a bit it's more like light absorbing. Yes. <laughs> so Massive Attack are a group that belongs to uh, the, uh, I guess you could say, trip-hop genre. And they were formed in the late 1980s in Bristol, England, okay. consisting of Robert, quote, 3D, Del Naja, Grant, Daddy G, Marshall, and Andrew Mushroom Vowels, who is no longer part of the group. They were originally part of the Wild Bunch, which was a collective of DJs and musicians in and around Bristol, England in the mid-1980s. Also included the artist Tricky, who was featured on early Massive Attack records and is a successful solo artist in his own right. And Nellie Hooper, who in addition to being a member of Soul to Soul, you know and I know because he remixed Radiohead's talk show host for the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. That act of kindness probably allowed him to help pay off his mortgage. So the first two Massive Attack records of Blue Lines and Protection, they spawned amazing jams like Unfinished Sympathy, Safe From Harm, and Five Man Army. Also, the title track from Protection, which is a great ballad featuring um, Tracy Thorne from Everyone uh, on Vocals. She was uh, the front woman of the group Everything But The Girl. They had a big hit around that time with the song Missing. It's uh, the one that goes 
And I need you like, and I miss you like the flowers miss the rain. You know when you hear it. But these songs were, you know it? All right. I know it. Excellent. She also just put out a very good solo album that uh, my wife likes a lot. But these songs were generally upbeat club bangers with like disco diva vocals. And while they haven't really aged poorly, uh, they still sound, you know, very mid-1990s. Now, the third Massive Attack record, Mezzanine, does not have club bangers, unless the club in question is located in the fifth circle of hell. The emphasis here is on dark, barely flickering fluorescent lights in bombed-out basements. There's a much heavier emphasis on dub bass lines, and actually, um, 3D and Daddy G proved themselves to be reasonably competent rappers on several of these songs. The title track, Inertia Creeps, and Rising Sun especially. There's two songs that feature the vocals of the reggae artist Horace Andy, and I'm pretty sure he's been featured on every Massive Attack album. In a way, he's kind of the unofficial member of the band. He sings on the opening track, Angel and Man Next Door, which we are going to feature here. So to call this song Dimly Lit Ambience is a bit of an understatement. It's more like evil dub reggae with implications of violence. But it's a fantastic song. It's actually built around the 700, the use of John Bonham's thunderous snare from when the levee breaks, albeit a distorted version. So this song, if you were, uh, I mean, this album, if you were a fan of the show uh, on Fox in the 2000s house, the uh, theme song from that show is actually the third song on this album called Teardrop, which features a lead vocal from the Cocteau Twins, Liz Fraser. It's a fantastic song, maybe one of the most widely known Massive Attack songs. But here we're going to play Man Next Door. If you like ambience, if you like dub, if you just like really dark music that's uh, impeccably put together, I would recommend this album highly. I was quite obsessed with it in college. And let's listen to Man Next Door by Massive Attack.
right, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around for our one-year anniversary episode, as well as the episode where we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Island Tour, the 20th anniversary of the 4398 Nassau Piper. So just to quickly recap the songs that we featured here. So in segment one, where we were talking about the underrated follow-up album, we featured the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's Way Out off of the album Show Your Bones. We also featured Kanye West on site off of the album Yeezus. In segment two, the overrated classic, we heard Downbound Train by Bruce Springsteen off of Born in the USA, followed by Through the Eyes of Ruby by the Smashing Pumpkins off of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. We just heard in segment three, the dimly lit spooky ambient segment where we focused on the thematic kind of sonic explorations of the Nassau Piper. We heard Tim Hecker's In the Fog off of Rave Death 1972, followed by Man Next Door by Massive Attack off of Mezzanine. So just a reminder of our social media links. We're on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond. Our Simplecast webpage is beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. It's a very convenient spot if you want to listen to um, every episode through the internet, the web. On Spotify, a playlist which contains as many songs as we mentioned that are available can be found in Beyond the Pond podcast songs. We would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes. It's always a good thing to help our iTunes standing. And also would encourage you to uh, check out the other podcasts in the Osiris Podcast Network. That is at OsirisPod.com. As you guys know by now, our publishing structure is pretty simple. We publish every other Tuesday. This month is going to be a bit different. We are going to publish three episodes this month, but in most months we we uh, do two episodes a month. So every other Tuesday, Tuesdays have no feel, so it's a good time to go beyond the pond. Um, always. Always a good time to go beyond the pond. So uh, look for us a week from now, and then look for us two Tuesdays from then. So on that note, we would encourage you that if you like what you hear from these bands, go see them live, buy a t-shirt, buy a vinyl, buy a CD if you're the kind of person that still listens to CDs because in this day and age with the way the music industry and with streaming, it's harder than ever for musicians to make money. So anything you can do to kick a few shekels towards the way of what you've heard here, we would greatly encourage it. Once again, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. Come back in one week. We will join hands, hopefully not collude at Russia, listen to some great music, and go beyond the pond. Yeah.
Osiris. 